Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And here we are for what our loyal listeners out there might like to get some idea of our surrounds, the apocryphal Australia headquarters themselves. Now, while we're often recording remotely, yes, as we are today, the apocryphal Australia headquarters remains a nerve centre of our enterprise, the base for our tracking down of all these stories of Australia's past. And, well, let's just say it's accumulated some special objects that we've come across in our never-ending endeavours. Now, that clock on the wall, for instance, the one near the filing cabinet, the one that helps us in our timing of the podcast. If listeners can remember the brave Irishman Larry Offtimes and his attempt on the world water speed record in 1967 on Lake Bonnie, South Australia, well, our clock is the very same clock his team used to pass by when leaving their lodgings every morning. And one of the filing cabinets under the clock we found dumped on a vacant lot near Apocryphal Australia headquarters and it was actually full of top-secret Cold War documents from the Australian Very Secret Intelligence Bureau detailing the events of the still-mysterious Arkady Blemen affair with all the cooking recipes heavily redacted, of, of course. We returned the documents, naturally, to someone from the Very Secret Intelligence Bureau. At least she said she was from the Bureau. And when she said, trust me, well, what else could we do? Fair enough. We didn't return all... Oh, no. We did return all the documents, didn't we? Yes. Uh, that's, absolutely. that's what we we're did. saying. Everybody out there, hear us fairly and squarely. We have returned them. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of the staff complain about all the junk, all the ephemera around here, don't they? And, and they think we should have a big clean-out, but... It remains part of the research, doesn't it? It does. They are physical objects. They are the evidence we've used for some of these stories we're bringing to people. And staff have to complain. I think that's in their job description. All right. Yeah, well, well, they've got plenty to complain about. All right, Stephen, I think we should swing straight into our first story today. So I'll hand over to you. Today, Michael, um, we're going to start off with an interesting man. We haven't got a, a real lot about his background. I don't really know, well, I don't know at all when he was born or when he died or if he did die, in fact. But all we have at the moment is a name and some scraps about his career, I suppose. And I'm talking about Dendy Jump Up. A song, a dance, and an inability to complete a motto. Dendy Jump Up was Australia's first star of stage and screen. He made the transition from silent movies to talkies and then back again, complaining that it was all too noisy. Dendy's early life is shrouded in shrouds. Both his parents worked as undertakers to the rich and famous, and Dendy was awed by the procession of famous personages that came to the house. True, they were not exactly in scintillating form performance-wise, but even in death, Dendy said he could detect a certain something about the stars that his parents buried. Dendy referred to this certain something as star quality, but his mother said it was gas. However, Dendy remained convinced that there was something else to it, 
and he sought a life on the stage just like his inspirations, although preferably longer lived. His first public appearance we do know about was a walk-on part in Hamlet. He progressed from there until he finally landed the plum role of 50th Gentleman in Harfa's 50 Gentlemen of somewhere near Verona. It was in this role that he came to the notice of Michael Papond, entrepreneur and fisherman. Papond signed Dendy up, taught him everything he needed to know about acting and then set him to work. Dendy toured the country in a plethora of roles. It was Macbeth one night and Cleopatra the next. 78 different roles in 69 days takes its toll. And Dendy soon began to miss cues, forget lines and merge characters. Richard III became imbued with the character of Felix from The Odd Couple. His streetcar named Desire inexplicably acquired songs from The King and I and The Sound of Music. But Dendy's crowning moment came in the middle of Hamlet when he stripped off his costume and stood centre stage, stark naked and singing The Age of Aquarius from Hair. The audience went ballistic and Papond realised he was on a winner. He extended Dendy's tour, now renamed All the Plays in the World in One Night, and forced Dendy to learn more and more parts. It all ended in tears. Poor Dendy just couldn't cope, and many argued that he lost himself among the characters he was forced to betray. Others argued that the characters he butchered each night decided it was their turn. Dendy withdrew from public life and entered a home for ex-showbiz types. He did disappear one night, though, from that home, and he was never seen nor heard of again. Another tragic tale from Australia's past, Stephen. I know. I think I finished last week on a on a fairly sad note, and I've begun this week on another one. Again, we we're not responsible for what history hands us, and we just take them as they come. Well, Stephen, I have three stories today. Two are geographic in nature, and one is an event. I'm going to start with Hiskins Street. Hiskin Street was a vital part of the swinging Adelaide, South Australia, scene of the 1960s, a vibrant, vital fashion promenade that was the mecca for all those South Australians looking for the grooviest gear around. Originally a centre of the Adelaide garment industry, Hiskin Street lurched into the limelight when the youngest member of the Parenti family, young Sasha Parenti, opened a boutique directly underneath his venerable family shirt factory. This was in 1964, and within 12 months, the hip shop was definitely the place to be seen. Bright young things flocked to the store, and soon imitators sprang up. The Gear Grotto, the Beat Battalion, and Rags Incorporated all vied to display the most outlandish, freakiest, coolest clothes around, and to offer the best lay-by terms available. The blare of the Beatles battled with the roar of the Rolling Stones and thankfully joined forces to dominate the din of Donovan. There were so many flowers in so much hair that many of Adelaide's florists were able to retire and kick up their heels on the Gold Coast. Bus tours were organised by RSL clubs all over the state to come and look at what the young people of the day were up to. Enter Maggie Oethk. Maggie Oethk's background was never firmly established, as it varied with whoever she was talking to. People were certain that she was from New York, Budapest, Oslo, Buenos Aires and or Cairo. 
She was variously described as being a lord's daughter, an earl's niece, a count's mistress and an undersecretary to the Arms Limitation Committee of the UN. Maggie Oethk revealed much later in her autobiography, Glad Rags and Glutamate, that after establishing her intensely fashionable boutique, The Uncut Rose, her express purpose was to see how far people would go. To this end, she designed and made clothes that were specifically intended to be ridiculous. Naturally, she made a fortune. Her Hessian sack evening wear was the must-have item of 1965. Her newspaper headwear was the indispensable accessory for anyone going to the races in 1966. Her three-metre-wide flares were a smash hit with singers, songwriters and crowd-control operatives everywhere. Her handbags made of old inner tubes caused outbreaks of spontaneous drooling in junior secretaries all over the city. Frustrated but cashed up, Maggie Oethk proceeded to go even further. Her corrugated iron waistcoats were snapped up by the cream of Adelaide's dandies. The cardboard sideburn protectors were sold out within minutes and her sunglasses made entirely from plasticine were the summer's hottest items. At least until they melted. Unable to make her point, in 1968 Maggie Oethk gave up. She sold the uncut rose to Sasha Parenti and he continued to sell the outrageous garments at prices that were almost as inflated as the balloon gear trademark range he took over from Maggie Oethk. By 1969, Hiskin Street was totally given over to clothing boutiques. Sasha Parenti then entered into a fatal price-cutting regime, which, within two months, resulted in every shop along the street going broke. It was the end of a time of love, romance and French seams, the like of which Australia may never see again. Now, Michael, as you probably know, I'm very into fashion. I'm a bit of a fashionista. And uh, I, was, I was actually wondering if there was a, a, an equivalent of, of Hiskin Street in any of the other capital cities. I know there was Chapel Street in Melbourne and obviously there's Carnaby Street in London, things like that. But I also discovered that there was one other um, place that rivalled Hiskin Street for, for a very short time. It was a, uh, a street called Bloodgutter Avenue off Abattoir Road in Stumpy, a small town in western Victoria. But it only rivalled Hiskin Street for one day, and that was due to a clerical error. So probably not much point raising it, really. Still, it adds colour to our podcast, Stephen. Mainly red in Blood Gutter Street. All right. And I think it's probably time for you to present us with another story that you've been preparing for some time. Oh, I'd love to. And this time we're actually going to do it's not a person, it's not a place, it's a thing. The Trans-Australia Railway. Oh. In September 1907, a new railway between Port Augusta in South Australia and Kalgoorlie in Western Australia was opened. In October of the same year, it was closed again. This fact was kept secret from the general populace. It reopened in October 1917, but the project had major problems in the 10 years prior to the official opening. Albert Shellex had been appointed as overseer of the project, and he was given carte blanche. Whatever he needed, he got The entire project was put out to tender and the winning engineering company was the Colonial Rail, Wireless and Board Game Company, headed by Mr Reginald Beauchamp. The project hit its first hurdle when, 
Due to typographical error, the original proposal asked for a Transit Australia wireway and the Colonial Rail Wireless and Board Game Company, mistakenly thinking a communications carrier was needed, obliged with a sophisticated series of interconnected tins joined with string. Once it was pointed out that what was needed was a railway, the company then proudly announced that they'd completed the work to an astonished Albert Schellex. He was even more astonished when he was then handed a box containing a railway monopoly board game. More meetings between the project team, led by Schellex, and the Colonial Rail Wireless and Board Game Company cleared any remaining doubts about what was required. And once the railway monopoly board game had been successfully removed from Reginald Beauchamp, the company set about their work with a will. The latest in modern railway tracks were laid through some of Australia's driest and most inhospitable lands. These new tracks were the product of years of experimental work and ushered in the new age of railway technology. But these new tracks had one feature that would cause some problems later on. Inch by inch, foot by foot and yard by yard, the railway crawled westwards until finally, with little fanfare, the bright light of Kalgoorlie could be seen by the workers. Encouraged, the last few miles were soon covered and then it only needed a final inspection by Albert Schellex and his team to complete the process. But it was here that disaster struck. These new high-tech tracks had a small design flaw which meant that they had to be laid in a certain way. However, due to yet another misreading of the plan, the railway had been laid back to front. This essentially meant that the trains could only travel in one direction. Shellex had two choices. He could order the building of a second track, duplicating the first, but laid correctly so trains could then run both east to west and vice versa, or he could leave the tracks as they were, run the trains just from east to west, and then ship the locomotives, along with passengers and cargo, via tram steamer, back to Port Augusta, then repeat the process. Shellex reasoned that the given Port Augusta was already a port, this would be the easiest and the cheapest option. In 1913, the government of the day ordered the ripping up of the tracks and it all began again. This then led to the official opening of the Trans-Australia Railway in 1917, which, if nothing else, proves that Australia is a can-do nation if it gets given a few goes. Now, Michael, I think you've got something that's a little bit different for us this time. Uh, It is different but it's remarkably similar to the last item that you presented for us, Stephen. 1907 was a big year in the Trans-Australia Railway and 1907 is the year I'm concentrating here on for the Handelberg invasion of Australia. This extraordinary and almost entirely unknown incident in Australian history has been the subject of much rumour and misinformation and the true facts have only recently come to light thanks to apocryphal Australia. Handelberg was a small European principality lying near the current junction of the borders of Germany, Switzerland and Austria. 
only 41 square kilometres in area, Handelberg was a leftover from one of those interminable wars in the Middle Ages, probably the war of someone or other's succession or the 15 minutes war or something like that. Handelberg's population was around 3,000 in 1907 and its principal source of income was supplying the tail feathers for the famed Swiss cuckoo clocks. In 1907, economic circumstances in Handelberg were parlous. The young people in the tiny country were not content with the traditional way of life, so all three of them were threatening to leave for the bright lights of Switzerland or Germany. Uh, Electricity didn't come to Handelberg until 1913. Something had to be done. The Handelberg Council met for days before hitting on a radical plan – it was decided that the minuscule country would declare war on a neighbour, lose quickly and gracefully, then watch the war reparation money roll in. As a plan, it was foolproof, simple, and had the additional advantage of being tried and true. But there was one flaw in the execution of this plan. When the declaration of war was drawn up, the 82-year-old clerk of the city rolls made a small but telling error in the writing. Instead of declaring war on Austria, big, relatively rich and close, the document declared war on Australia, big, relatively rich and a long way away. Having used the last of the official quality declaration weight parchment, there was nothing the government of Handelberg could do. The country was committed to a war with Australia. After consulting a good atlas, a moderately useful encyclopaedia, and the local travel agent, the Handelbergian army set off. Unfortunately, two members of the force had to return when their bicycle tyres were punctured, and this halved the fighting strength. However, the remaining duo of Handelberg's finest managed to travel by rail from Munich to London, then via passenger liner to Fremantle, West Australia. Once on Australian soil, the leader of the expeditionary force, Marshal Gert Stein, promptly surrendered to the harbour master. The astonished harbour master passed the entire Handelbergian army onto the temporary governor of West Australia, Admiral Sir Frederick Benford. Eventually, the two Handelbergian soldiers wound up with Prime Minister Deacon. After having a good laugh, he sent them home with a new woollen suit each and a warning not to try anything again, but also promising that he'd hush the whole thing up for all their sakes. When the Handelbergian army arrived home, they found that their country had disappeared. While they were gone, the country elders had come up with a better plan to improve the country's lot. They sold it to the German, Swiss and Austrian speculators. Every citizen of the tiny country received enough to live happily without ever having to work again. Do we get to count that as a war we won? If it was made public, and I suppose we're doing it right now, we could say we certainly didn't lose it. Winners. Stephen, I've had a little bit of a sneak preview at your next item, and I do love a biography of someone who's got a single initial in their name. So take it away. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, this one's all about Samuel J. Kranzberg, um, born 1913, passed away sadly in 1952. Samuel J. Kranzberg was born Charles Diddley in Bluster in England. He was the son of a self-described itinerant itinerant and an exotic dancer. The young Charles was introduced to life on the road 
at an early age due to the, uh, the, the careers of his parents. The constant travelling necessitated by his parents' careers meant that Charles was largely taught at home. When he was 14 years old, Charles was befriended by an elderly American gentleman, Oliver P. Goldbergstein, who introduced the young English lad to the wonders of all things American. Charles became entranced with this newfound knowledge and pledged that one day he would see America. His parents tolerated his obsession, but were perplexed by his constant requests for bologna on rye, eggs over easy and burgers to go. In 1922, Charles changed his name by Deepole to Samuel J. Kranzberg, believing this to be a typical American name, and he finally resolved to fulfil his promise to himself. On the morning of the 18th of June that same year, Samuel presented himself at the Southampton docks. He approached a ship called the Afghan Dream and stowed away. This was the beginning of a long, mistake-riddled odyssey. After spending time in Afghanistan, Africa, Antigua, Austria and Argentina, Samuel finally arrived in Australia. He soon came to realise that the education provided by his parents had been rather selective in his curriculum. While he was proficient at sleeping rough, walking long distances, catching a meal, he got an A for that, and exotic dancing, he could not read or write. Indeed, his literary skills did not encompass anything past the letter A. This, plus the fact that Samuel's parents thought geography was some sort of porridge, meant that Samuel's chances of making it to America were somewhat thin. His American dream still beckoned, however, and Samuel resolved yet again to get to the States, quote, or my name isn't Samuel R. Kranzberg. No one had the heart to tell him that his name wasn't Samuel R. Kranzberg, it was Samuel J. Kranzberg or Charles Diddley. Samuel resolved to use the meagre store of talents that God and his stupid parents had given him, and he spent the remaining years of his life attempting to walk to America. When it was pointed out that Australia was surrounded by water, he said he would walk to the States via the shallow bits. Samuel J. Kranzberg ensured his place in the annals of apocryphal Australians by being the first person to circumnavigate the continent on foot. Nice effort, Samuel J. Now, Michael, this next one, this sounds like it has a, a literary bent to it. Certainly does, and I'm pleased about that. I'm bringing the story of the Mennington Private Library to our loyal listeners out there. The Mennington Private Library in St Kilda, Melbourne, is a rare surviving example of an institution that was once common all over Australia, the Private Library. Founded by Thaddeus Mennington in 1878, it is long past the glory days of the 1950s, but is still frequented by loyal customers eager for its warm service and its eccentric collection. Mennington's will provided enough money to buy the handsome two-storey building that houses the library, and the remainder was invested wisely enough to provide an ongoing supplement to the fees charged by the library board. While generous, Thaddeus Mennington also had firm ideas about books, reading and libraries, and his will mandated many aspects of the library that still hold today. For instance, Mennington despised the Dewey Decimal System as being too regular. As a result, the books on the shelves of the Mennington Private Library are shelved by colour. Red ones on one shelf, blue on another, green on another, and so on. 
much cataloguing time is spent in deciding the predominant colour of the covers of new purchases, and librarians argue merrily over tea, biscuits and the Pantone colour chart. Another peculiarity of the Mennington Private Library is manifested in all detective fiction novels. In each of these books, the last three pages have been removed, allowing readers to speculate on whodunit without the intervention of the author. While odd, Thaddeus Mennington was also open-minded. His library always bought multiple copies of controversial books, championing Lady Chatterley's Lover, Tropic of Capricorn and Portnoy's Complaint. Librarians helpfully bookmarked the more salacious passages so readers could turn straight to them. No library can run without fines, and Mennington Private Library is not no library. Thanks to Thaddeus Mennington, tardy readers have a choice when it comes to overdue books. They can take the more conventional route and pay a fine, or they can choose from the forfeit box. Long-time library patrons know better, but novice users often choose the forfeit, unaware that these forfeits usually involve physical pain, spiritual uncertainty or public embarrassment. Successive librarians have built up a fine collection of thumbscrews, cats of nine tails and metre-long blackboard rulers. Others have concentrated on dangerous wildlife and the head librarian's office over the years has been host to several venomous snakes, two black panthers and a blue-ringed octopus in a tank. The occasional deaths have been spoken of by the head librarian as acceptable losses. I've got a horrible feeling that some international media company might hear this episode of Apocryphal Australia and decide that private libraries are a good idea and reintroduce them on a, on a wider scale. Yeah, I've often thought that if somebody came up with the idea of a public municipal library today, brought it to the council chambers and said, you know what, we'll build a big building, put lots of books and people can just take them away free. Yeah, the the idea wouldn't fly. (laughs) That's about it for episode four of Apocryphal Australia, Stephen, except how about the mailbag? A little bit on the thin side this week, unfortunately. Um, I've only got one piece of mail this week. Well, that's better than me because zero zip, no one's writing to me. Oh, well, uh, uh, well, well, we'll just wrap this one fairly quickly then. This is from Mrs Joy Lindstrom, um, who says she loves the podcast. Thanks, Joy. That's good to know. She wants to know how she might get to go to some of the places that we mentioned in Episode 3. I think if you recall, there was the Penombi Rocks, there's um, Henderson's Track. Mm, mm. But I've had a think about it and uh, I really recommend it, Joy. We're professionals, Yeah. I don't think people should be going into these places unless they're trained researchers like us. I think that's the best way to think of it, Stephen. It has taken us some time to reach the level of expertise we have to deal with the country and the past. And as you say, amateurs, I don't think so. And that's all we've got time for. And Apocryphal Australia will be back next episode with more wonders, more outlandish events, more extraordinary human beings. So for now, it's Michael Pryor saying farewell. And it's farewell from me, Stephen Higgins. And please don't forget, like, follow, tell your friends. I endorse that. 
You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.